0: Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chas Mostad. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Perkapp. You are listening to Inside Supercars. For sure, I think if I get to drive more and more and more, uh, for sure, you know, I'm going to feel more comfortable. I nearly told him to calm down in the end. I'm like, mate, you're making me stressed. <laughs> I'm stressed enough as he is. In 2014, Chas Mostet and Paul Morris won Bathurst. The race finished at almost 6:30, and 5.2 million people were watching at the end of that race. So a quarter of the Australian population watched Chaz win that race. That's a pretty, you know, compelling figure to, to drop on anybody. <laughs> From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars.
1: And. Welcome again to Inside Supercars, another enthralling week, we hope. We hope you as listeners will enjoy it, because this week we've got a couple of special treats. One is Kevin Fitzsimon, Dunlop uh, General Manager, Motorsport, uh, talking about the 2018 tyre and the testing off. And secondly, we've got Chris Duell, telling us about the ins and outs of driver management and how he discovered Scotty McLaughlin. But first of all, the agenda item for this week, uh, Craig.
2: Plenty of them too as we get set for a double dose of V8 action where we have Sydney Motorsport Park running the main game, uh, the Virgin Championship, and also the Dunlop 2s, Super 2s.
1: And terrific. The Super 2s, another New Zealander, the production line just keeps on working, this time um, Richie Stanaway, a 25-year-old who has run one and one in GP2 and GP3, He's been a works Aston Martin driver. Well, he's getting a, a, a drive in Super 2 with PRA. He drove last year with Chris Kipper and impressed many people at Bathurst. He's back with them again this year, and this year he's sharing with Cam Waters, a terrific young driver, 25-year-old, as I said. Great to see him there. And, of course, he's having a run uh, up at Winton today along with BJR, who uh, Nick Perkat is giving the uh, AC Delco Colours its first run along with his teammates uh, having their second test day for the year. Uh, Nick, Slade, uh, Nick Slade, Nick Slade, Nick Perkett, Tim Slade and Tim Blanchard all on board. Um, and I think probably their co-drivers will be getting a, a run as well. Uh, Mobile, HS, Mobile One HSV are having a test today, is that right, Craig?
2: Yeah, that's right. And uh, we were scheduled to, uh, to speak to... Uh Anthony McDonald, about uh, how he's uh, running in the team manager role there at Mobile One HSV. But uh, because they have called in this uh, test day, which wasn't scheduled, uh, he's going to join us on the show next week.
1: Well, that's terrific because we want people to send in their questions for Macca, as he's known, up and down Pitt Lane. Um, another one running this uh, today, I think there were a total of 12 cars, uh, development series and main game series cars, running uh, at Winton. It was Erebus, who were giving uh, their uh, rookie day to Anton P. Pasquale. Now, Anton's a, a, a familiar face and name because he's been winning over in Europe, uh, came back at uh, end of 15, probably ran out of money, but he's been running under Paul Morris Motorsport in the Super 2, and very winning races and being very successful, and he's been given a run in David Reynolds' car. Um, David, of course, uh, will give it a shakedown run just to make sure the car's okay, and then uh, Anton will step in for his uh, his debut in a main game car. One uh, thing for sure, course, Tony
2: what? is one thing for sure, Tony is that uh, every team's going to be extremely vigilant on who and when. Drivers get in their cars, and I know you're going on to speak to David stretching his wings in other cars. But uh, it should be pointed out that Nissan have lost a test day because of uh, Jack LeBrock doing some laps in a uh, development in a car uh, at Winton when uh, they've, the officials have decided that no, that constituted a test day rather than a uh, evaluation day for the drivers who were doing the bulk of the running.
1: Indeed, and when you're only getting uh, three test days a year and one of them is one of an official day, it's a pretty quick thing to lose a day. So Nissan, I'm sure, and Kelly Motorsport will be hurting with that one. And they'll just make sure that all the other teams are just a bit more vigilant in making making sure they dot um, the I's and cross the T's in the correct manner. Anyway, so um, it's been a very full agenda.
2: Um, You were going to speak about David running the Mustang.
1: Oh, yes, indeed. Dave Reynolds having a run in Joe Collegia's uh, 69 fastback. Uh, it's a it's a road car, but David enjoyed the experience. Um, uh, I think he uh, had a bit of a shock, really, in terms of it's not a race car, which David's been running pretty well for the last uh, 15 years or so, but he enjoyed the experience and uh, was out. Uh, I think he had three seconds on the day, but uh, just good, good on David for getting out there and doing what drivers at the top level, level at the most you used to do, race whenever they can.
2: Indeed, and I know you are a lover of Pukekohe and ITM have signed up for three more years for the uh, supercar event over in the land of the long white cloud.
1: Indeed. Um, Pukekohe by that stage will be almost past its years by date um, and hopefully uh, Hamden Downs will get a good chance to get a swing at the... Uh, Series over there. Um, so that's uh, the agenda items for this week. We're, of course, coming ready up to uh, Sydney Motorsport Park on the <coughs> 18th, and 19th, and 20th. Um, but after the break, we'll hear from Kevin Fitzsimon talking about the tyre development for 2018 and the testing before that.
0: Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page, and to ask a question, email insiders at com. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm
2: David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars.
0: So, welcome to Inside
1: Supercars. Kevin Fitzsimon talking with Craig at uh, Queensland Raceway, talking about the development for the new tyre for 2018. Very interesting to hear what they're doing in light of what's been going on this year.
2: Well, Kevin, Dunlop Motorsport once again having uh, an interesting year in supercars. How have you found, as we've ticked over the halfway point, the experience with the new tire and its adoption into the sport into the series issue yeah we've had um, you know
3: the tire's fast there's no doubt about that so that's been that 's been all encouraging and and uh, and everything but the um you know we had the issues at Phillip Island um, the problem that we 've got with the new tire is uh, the excessive camber on it rewards. You know, with lap time, you know it gives you gives you a bit of a bonus. So uh, uh, that's the thing. You know, we're in the business of going fast, and so are the teams. And um, you know, they, they push it to the absolute limits, and sometimes over it. And that that's what happens. But in general, it's been really, really good. The tyres fast. Um, interesting to hear some of the uh, the wild cards that have had a bit of a drive in the last uh, few events and everything else like that. And you know, just sort of the the difference between the old tyre and the new, and um, from guys that don't have a, a, a massive amount of experience as far as Um, Some of the other guys have been around for a lot of years and everything, but you hear the same comments and everything. They generally like it, so that's been really encouraging. Uh, We've got a tyre test coming up in September. We've got um, some new tyres being uh, built. Uh, 80 have been sea freighted. There's another 40 being air freighted. Um, We've got some more testing to do in Japan on the drum and in the laboratory up there. Um, Then uh, they'll decide the final two specs that we'll test. We've booked two days down at Phillip Island to have a a play down there with three cars. And... um, Uh, you know then sort of full steam ahead into uh, production for next year so uh, so far so good it's all looking pretty encouraging and um you know, we, we sort of get asked by the engineers, can you produce a tyre that uh, doesn't reward you with speed with the camber? It's, uh, it's not that easy, you know. It's, uh, the cars aren't cheap to run and um, we, we've got to get it right and you've got to come up with a, uh, a product that, you know, is safe and durable and, and all those type of things and lap speed doesn't really matter. So, um, you know, if everybody's on the same tyre, it's not, not the critical thing. So uh, the safety angle's what we've got to push for. Um, something with a bit more feel in it for the drivers so that if they are having an issue, they can uh, feel it. Um, prior to the the tyre losing its its air. Um, which is the main thing between last year's spec and this year's is the, the, the previous one. The guys said that you could actually feel if you're having a bit of an issue sort of thing that um, you get a bit of a warning, whereas now you don't. You, so uh, the tyre's a bit stiffer, therefore you, you don't get any warning at all. Just one minute it's got air, the next second it's got none, You know, and it's that type of thing. So um, so that's what we've passed on to the factory. We're trying to spread the, the heat and the, the load over a wider area on the tyre, and hopefully they've come up with something uh, that does
2: that. With the uh, decision to go to the 2016 spec tyre for uh, Bathurst, is it, um, is it a case that you just don't trust people not to run excessive camber? Could you have set up a parameter which would have been safe and still allowed teams to use this tyre?
3: Yeah, it was discussed. I mean, um, we've got a very good working relationship with the tech panel um, and uh, with uh, with supercars themselves, and I had a, had a good chat with Dave Stewart and... Um, we, you know, it, the unfortunate part is while the front, you know, the, while the upright isn't controlled, um, if we introduced a maximum camber that they could run for Bathurst and Pukekohe it may affect some cars more than others. Um, so that's not fair. You don't want to level the playing field that way, um, and you don't need to throw a variable on. So it's, it was that type of thing. To, to go to the hard tyre as opposed to running the soft up there um, I was expecting the tyre to be quicker but we've seen some significant jumps in lap time um, large chunks of time taken off um, track records and everything and that's you know, you, you don't need to be going any quicker at Bathurst, we've had some cracker races there the last five or six years with very very close finishes and, and things so we, we knew that Um, we could go there with something and the the teams are going to go there this year because we're going back to the old um, tyre they're going to go there with 16 new practice tyres so they've got a better chance than ever of getting the setup right they've got some nice new tyres to play with and treat it like we treat the, the flyaway rounds which is fantastic you know it's um you know it's very difficult to set your car up on used tyres um and um I certainly understand the direction that the category take as to why they do that. It's it, you know, with the, the, the cost saving as opposed to another couple of sets, but um, it's something that we'll sort of look at with uh, the future. But I'm really looking forward to Bathurst this year as far as giving them that. They've got an extra set of race tyres this year than what they've had previously. Last year it was 32. This year it's 36. Um, so I think we could well see, you know, safety cars. Um, Given, you know, it, we Hopefully we don't have too many of them, but I think we'll see the race record broken. You know, It, it should be pretty quick. They, they should be able to get, and get uh, well and truly in the ballpark very, very quickly up there. It should be good.
2: I imagine that the engineers have tried the levels of camber on the 2016 tyre as what they've been using on the 2017 tyre, and it hasn't worked. We couldn't end up in a situation where the 2016 tyres on the car and they lean the tyres over as far as they're leaning them now because of the different construction type.
3: Yeah, it's a different shaped tyre as well. The, the 2017 tyre is very square across the, from shoulder to shoulder. You know, um, I've seen lots of things on social media when we said we're changing the shape of the tyre and they said, oh, they're going to be like a 50 cent piece. Um, we mean the shape sidewall to sidewall when you're talking shape on a tyre. Yes, they're still round um, and they're black. Um, the uh, yeah. Sidewall, well, Speed Cafe's uh, uh, April Fool's joke was a beauty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the pink tyre that was good, but yeah, yeah it's basically just um, the the actual profile of the tyre sidewall to sidewall, um, that shape will change. you will have more of a curve in it. Um, that's to um, that alleviates some of the pressure on the tyre. The new tyres we've got coming for the test, um, two of the three specs are like that. Um, same width as what we've got now, but just build a curve into the tyre. Um, to just try and spread the load over a wider area as opposed to concentrating it very close to the edge of the sidewall, which is what it's got now. That gives you the, the heat build-up, and that's where the issues arose, arose from at Phillip Island. We have seen it on the Super Soft as well, but the Super Soft gives you the grip without needing such high camber. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just one of those type of things. It's it's still going to be a learning, learning curve. Um, the previous tyre, if you crank the camber on like that you'd be driving on the sidewall because of its shape so I don't think we'd see that yes guys will push the boundary, they'll, they'll find a limit um, you know, go and do a race run and try and break it and find out where they are that, that is going to happen but hopefully there have been lots of lessons learnt uh, this year and um, we, we, we don't have too many problems up there sort of thing and at the end of the day that is the race that everybody wants to win you know, it's no matter who you are or where you come from Bathurst is the one you want to win whether you're an engineer, a mechanic, or the cook, you know, so or the tyre guy, um, you know, so that's yeah, that's the type of thing. Pretty much yeah. got that wrapped
2: up though. Yeah, I got that one wrapped <laughs>
3: up. I suppose I've, I suppose you sort sit back and look at it like that. I've uh, I've won a few. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's that type of thing. But yeah, you know, like yeah, as I said, we're in the business of going fast. So are the teams. Um, safety's a priority, you know, and, and Bathurst is not the place to take risks it's very high profile as far as the, the the tv audience and the people up there and everything the profile of winning the race is very very high but we uh, we certainly don't want to have uh, people firing into the fence at the top of the mountain and you know there's uh, no room for error up there the speeds are very very high um we've seen with fab's crash a few years back there and everything the chase is unforgiving if you have one there um so, yeah, lots of scenarios, and it was just a, a, a mutual decision after we sort of sat back and looked at it and said, look, I've got no qualms and no reservations whatsoever in going back to the other tyre. It's um, it's a positive move from our point of view. It's you know, going back to the hard tyre. Um, as I said, it's produced really good races there the last few years. It's been um, very, very good from that point of view as far as um, um, you know the, the, the quality of the racing and the, the closeness to the finish has been exceptional.
2: So, uh, yeah, no, no bones about it. Let's do it. So, if yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, even though this tyre has been a, a massive success on most circuits, and we have talked so many years now about you've got to have a front-back tyre that can run everywhere, but even though this tyre's been fantastic and has produced some fantastic racing, you're still thinking that next year we'll be on a, on a much more curved tyre and we'll be moving away from this spec tyre. Uh, pending these tests at Phillip Island,
3: yeah, yeah, basically um, we'll just see what the the test brings up. You know, it may well be that the current spec um, super soft tire stays. You know, it's it, it's been pretty good. The racing's been very good. Um, to be honest with you, I, I expected track records would fall this year, but I was absolutely blown away in Perth that every single car. Knock the track record off, and especially listening to engineers at you know lap two and lap three saying take it easy, long race. And the first lap there was 17 cars, and by the end of lap two, the whole had uh, second flying lap. Um, by the end of the next one, the entire field had broken the record. And I thought, like, <laughs> uh, on the probably the uh, the worst surface we race on as far as grip level goes, you know. So that was that was really really good. So th- that tire may well stay, and it may just be that we build a uh, a different shape, harder compound whether we call it a soft, whether we call it the hard, for Adelaide, uh, Phillip Island, Pukekohe, Bathurst. You know, there's, there's no reason why we can't do that. Um, and just sit back and leave the current tyre, I'd be quite happy to do that. So, um, you know, just hopefully we get through these, uh, these next few race meetings, um, uh, get through the test. We've booked two days down at the island um, specifically to... Uh, uh, to have a bit of a fallback should the weather turn on us like it did last year you know? And you know, we, we, we copped a bit of criticism um, with the, the last test being rained out and not going back there it all came down to timing, it was you're heading into enduro mode time, MotoGP at Phillip Island, um, team availability, circuit availability uh, we're blessed at the moment that we've got some spare cars with some teams that were able to take three cars down there to do the test um, that's, uh, that's a godsend to be able to do that you can't do it with just one so, uh, yeah, figures crossed we get through that
2: one and, and uh, we can make some decisions as to what we do for 2018 and beyond. The big problem is lead time in manufacturing for the series because it's a, it's a niche tyre. Nowhere else in the world is it run. So if you were to go, all right, we, need, we actually need four different types of tyre. Obviously, you have the right moulds. How hard would it be to work out a schedule where you could have X tire, Y tire, Z tire, and, um, and go through that process of ne- making the tires more niche to the to the type of racing.
3: Yeah, yeah, you could you can do that sort of thing. So we need to sit back and look back at it and say, right, oh, uh, um, we've got the, the proximity of Adelaide and Phillip Island are close together, so that can be one build, no problem. The proximity of the New Zealand race in November, the Bathurst race in October you can do it in, in one build or consecutive months, so that's not an issue. Any manufacturing downtime is changing t- your tooling, so changing moulds and things like that's difficult, so you just need to factor it in if there's two or three races in the middle or if we have a um, you know, the, the, the discussion of the big bash um, format and everything if, if the, we, we haven't had any talks from our point of view on that one but if they turn around and say we, we have tested the super soft tyre, we know what it's capable of, we saw the lap times it could produce um, maybe that's something they can sit back and say right we need to do a run you, and you sort of sit back and say one set of tyres or two sets of tyres per car, by the time you do the field it's 104 tyres for one set per car um, so to do two sets, you need 3s threes, three hundred and twelve. It's that type of scenario. Um, so you can sit back and, and build it for two or three race meetings, and all of a sudden you're talking six hundred or nine hundred tires. That's not so bad. You can do it. You can do a run, but you just look at the calendar. Once we get the calendar, have the discussion, and then work our way through what, what formats we've got, what tires we want, quantities, and then you just you build your production plan and whether we skip one and that. We've got we can we can produce approximately two thousand tires a month. Um, is at at maximum build because they need to have times to clean the mould in between a certain amount of tyres all those type of things and get the mix right Um, still to this day which we've done since day one if we're building a a run of um, fourteen or 1500 tyres you do them in race meeting blocks so the tyres we needed here for this weekend. Um, if it was a normal uh, round, you'd, you'd have 624 at a at a 24 tyre per car round. We've got the wild cards in Queensland Raceway this weekend, so all of a sudden it becomes 720. So you just factor that in. So you have right we've got three rounds with wild cards We need to factor in the extras. I've got plenty of them left over. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll go. For, that's another story for another day. But um, uh, you know, it, it's that type of scenario. You can you build them in. It may well have meant that we we skip. This event and go straight from uh, the Darwin build to the Eastern Creek. i oh, sorry, Sydney Motorsport Park build, um, and then you, you do your, your two big ones for uh, maybe do um, Sydney Motorsport Park and Newcastle together, mm-hmm. and then do your, your Gold Coast and Sandown together because they're quite built to get your your, your numbers up around your 2000. So that that's flexible. It's um, the factory works approximately six months in advance. Um, I've got pre-production orders in now for October, November, December, January. Um, of the, whether whichever way it works out with what compound or what shape or whatever the case may be, we can decide that closer to the date. But for buying the materials and the chemicals and things like that, because a lot of the things in it are used in other tyres, as far as other race series, um, they can stockpile that and they know we're going to use them um, moving forward, so they can be prepared for those big builds. And then we just sort of roll forward from there. But the race meeting builds are all the same when we when we do per event. We just might do three events in one build.
1: After the break we will come to Chris Duell. And the second part of the Kevin Fitzsimon talk will come in next week's show, along with Anthony McDonald of Mobile One HSV Racing. So, over after the break, it's back with Chris Guell.
0: The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world.
4: Yeah, I mean it. It means a lot, you know. Through the years, a lot of reference. This race is one of our majors. Six hundred miles around here is no easy task.
1: Uh, we're able to beat the two level two boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which we uh, were able to do.
4: Hope that we're not again. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, rest of family.
0: Inside motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Shane van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Jamie Winkup. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars.
1: And today we welcome Chris Jewell, driver, manager extraordinaire, and he's got a whole bunch of things on his CV which you'll get to. Welcome, Chris. G'day, Tony. It's uh, terrific to have you on the show. Um, You deal in a a part of the world I don't really know, but I've obviously known of for 20 plus years. Um, Maybe we could start off with just a few minutes talking about where you first fell in love with motorsport. Oh, gee, it's uh, probably indirect
4: in some ways because subsequent to going to my first racing event, so I ultimately learned that my grandmother used to go flying with Stan Jones. My oh. grandfather used to be a sidecar pilot on the old Phillip Island Triangulated course, and he used to run across the length and breadth of the island. But I didn't know that when I first attended a 2 plus 4 meeting in 1971 at Phillip Island with a friend of my father's from our local yacht club who was a member of the Alfa Romeo Car Club, and... Uh, I was smitten. There was a um, a silver Elfin 600 driven by Maury Quincy. I think Murray oh and Ray both God. spent some time on two and four wheels. Yes,
1: and, I do
4: remember um, it. yeah. A 60s baby, obviously the silhouetted shape of everything Jack Brabham uh, was, was ensconced in my mind. So to see an Elfin 600 with wider rear tyres than any road-going car had and a very small blade wing and a typical shark uh, nose front end To my mind, it might as well have been Jack Brabham, and I was absolutely taken aback by it, only until such time as a friend of my father's said, if you think this is good, we'll go to Sandown in February to what was known as the Tasman series. And upon seeing the Formula 5000s for the first time in 1972, uh, that was it. Periscope airboxes, bright colours, loud exhausts and prodigiously fast speed, and the rest is history. And you were leaving little puddles around around the track. Well, essentially yes. But, yes. Uh, that yes. was in the days when you'd watch at Sandown on the inside of the back straight,
1: um, yes. across
4: at the Corrigan Road entry, and uh, where you now can no longer go, and I don't think you've been able to go ever since um, the, uh, the FIA extended circuit uh, was ultimately put in place at Sandown, but... You could had a great vantage point up on the, I think it was about the 14 furlong mark, just before um, Lukey Heights, as it's, it was known for so many years. But you could look back across to the grandstand side from a great level of elevation and see the cars racing down the start finish straight. Largely, only see the periscopes from one of five thousands and the colours of touring cars and sports stands of the day. And um, and I think it was the fact that the horse railing, which had a distance between each upright post of maybe 20 meters it actually accentuated the speed because you could almost measure the acceleration yes. visually and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that was uh, that was really the start of a love affair with all things motor racing for many many years and my family were primarily afl and and yachting background so we were a sporting family and my father used to go to albert park in the 50s when sterling moss and co used to race around the, the circuit on the streets uh, back then but I guess I was destined always to like motorsport, but that was that's largely where it started from, when once upon a time, open wheelers were significantly more popular than touring cars. Can you believe it?
1: Indeed, indeed. And we might get back there again one day. Okay, so fast forward. I know you did compete in Formula 4. You must have run in other categories, apart from go-karts. Um,
4: yeah, I bought a car at 18, funnily enough. I, I lost my, my road licence and uh, figured I needed something to drive fast because you couldn't do it on the road. And uh, I sold my then XW Falcon and bought a go-kart from Drew Price uh, when he was in a very small shop on Warrigal Road in Oakley, long before he became a karting giant. And I had a friend of mine would give me a lift each uh, month, race club events at at Oakley or Deals Road as it was known to many people. And I did uh, three or four years in karts and then got a job and had a respectable uh, income and started to save up money to do some other things. And then 93, I went into business with Michael Borland of Spectrum Racing Cars to drive in the Victorian Formula Ford State Series in the second of what was then his new Spectrum 05 chassis. This would have been 93.4, and with Jason Wright driving a similar car in the national Formula Ford Championship. And I largely did it, not because I necessarily had this massively competitive motorsport streak in me where I needed to be or wanted to be a driver because when I was driving in the 90s, I was already significantly older than all of the young hot shoes coming through, Jason included. I wanted to do it so I had an, an understanding of it because my long-time dr- long dream was to actually own a race team. And I figured if I ever had a driver look at me from the cockpit and said, you haven't got a clue, I like, can at least say I've got some clue. <laughs> yes.
1: yes, I'm sure something that Roland Dane and a few of the others like that also had in their mind. Okay, so when did you actually start your business in motorsport? Uh, 94,
4: uh, on the back of Jason and myself, Jason Bright, getting you know very familiar with each other and me rating him quite highly and he wanted to win the Australian Formula Ford Championship and then go on to Formula One like every young driver wanted to. I was working in a, a senior marketing position for, for BOC Gasses, which was CIG, prior to turning into BOC Gasses, and, and they that was in the infancy of their Super tutor sponsorship, which I had a reasonable crossover with. So I figured I knew a lot about commercial world of motorsport and, and sponsorship, because everybody used to chase us for sponsorship. And um, we started putting out some uh, some sponsorship proposals to help Jason's career during his championship year of 95, and ultimately secured uh, some Fairly significant investment from skilled, your flexible workforce or skilled engineering, as it was mo- known back in the days, yeah. which amounted to somewhere in the vicinity of a quarter of a million dollars, which a lot of money in nineteen ninety five. Oh yeah, and uh, embarked on the international dream of trying to get to Formula One via America, and at the same time trying to fly the flag. Uh, in Australia, by coming back and racing in Formula Holden here, which ultimately Jason went on to win in 1997. And I can still remember the day I walked into my wife and said, guess what I've just done today after 12 years at BOC? She said, what's that? I said, I've actually resigned to work for Jason Bright on straight commission chasing sponsors. And she goes, well, I've had a good day. I'm pregnant. Yeah. Timing is everything. (laughs) So I'm uh, working on straight commission gets you up pretty early in the morning and uh, that's largely where my business life started and I worked exclusively with Jason for many years before he ultimately was um, employed by Stone Brothers Racing and there was not a lot I could really do to bring some income in other than a bit of commentary here and there and some journalistic work. So I went to work uh, in the motorsport division of IMG in Sydney putting together the first New Zealand event. Uh, looking after the Canberra Street event and working actively on Bathurst, Gold Coast Indy and Clipsal 500. They were largely the five marquee events that IMG had a hand in back then and ultimately that morphed into my opportunity to um, to move back to Melbourne from Sydney and run Jason's V8 supercar team for the five years that it existed
1: for before reverting back to my own business um, on January 1, 2009. Um, and so that's Velocity.
4: Velocity Management Group. Previous business yep. was called Quattro Sports Marketing and right. Velocity Management Group. Uh, I did an ASIC search on New Year's Day in uh, 2009 and I was hoping to try and morph into the business name something along the lines of you know, Scuderia Veloci and obviously Veloci and Velocity Bedfellows. And when yep. I found out that there was no Velocity Management Group and I'd worked for the International Management Group, I jumped
1: at uh, securing that name and I've had the name ever since. Indeed, indeed. Um, I, in fact, Craig, very much remember uh, getting a copy. I think that Chris would have given me a copy of um, Jason's Path to Indy.
4: Indy Assault.
1: Indy Assault. India right.
4: Assault, it was called. AUS for Australia and Assault, as you were making an assault on the Indy 500. And we still and haven't won it yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, th- that but it was an incredibly impressive document, Chris. Yeah, let say it was pretty good. And I can remember I was working in Preston, that was
4: BOC's head office. And I was driving to Jason's family home in, from memory, it was Moi uh, or Trafalgar, one of the two down that way. But I would drive down Monday through to Thursday night, every night for five weeks, putting together that proposal. And largely that proposal is the vision that we pitched That Skilled Engineering, who bought into it, and yep. uh, and a few other smaller sponsors who did as well. And, you know, Jason went on to race in the United States, for a Ford 2000 championship in
1: 1996
4: while doing double duty back here in the Formula Holden, uh, Cam's Gold Star. And it was a, a very exciting year, but what a lot of people don't know is that we were largely out of money before we started because we committed to both categories. We knew we needed more money than we had, and the second responses we were looking for didn't ever come. And some very loyal, long-time supporters of Jason Bright actually tipped in, and different people would discount the price of doing business, and we did everything we could to get through that year. And you know, I remember Jason was winning $10,000 a weekend to win in America, and our plan was for him to win, speculatively, seven of the 14 races, 50%, which was $70,000, which we hoped would have bridged the shortfall. And from memory, he didn't win the seven, but he certainly came close. And He led the championship for the majority of the year, uh, only to miss out on the last lap of the last race held at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And in those days, the winner of that championship would receive a scholarship to move into Indy Lights. And I remember he finished fourth behind the person who won the championship. He finished third, and he finished fourth by two inches. And I sometimes wonder what difference might have happened with Jason's career had he actually won that championship. But alas,
1: he's had a good and
4: long uh, professional motor racing career since then, but... uh, yeah, great times and good memories, but uh, that feels like a long time ago because it is, 21 yeah. years ago,
2: in fact. And it, very it interestingly, there. I was there in 99, and they were still talking about Jason in the in the Formula Ford uh, series there. And if my memory serves me correct, he actually won the oval component of the series won, and came second the in the road racing.
4: He won the Rookie of the Year. He won the East Championship. He won the West Championship. And he became second in the road racing component and second in the overall championship. And considering he'd never driven on the ovals, for memory, we uh, we kicked off the year at Homestead and he finished in sixth place. But By the time we got to the road circuits, no one could even keep up with him. He was driving the Formula Holden in Australia in places like Phillip Island and Sandown and then going back and jumping into the USF 2000 car. It would have felt... Like a walk in the park, I'm sure, because less aero, it wouldn't have scared him as much as the formidable Holden speed would have. And at places like Mossport Park, where he won you know, the race there convincingly in what was a, you know, a massively strong slipstreaming battle the this part of the race, and to have Derek Daly, who was the then commentator for the championship television commentator, come up and say this young man from Australia is something very special, I think he'll go a long way. We really thought we were on to something big, but. Um, when the budget ran out, then a little bit more of a conservative approach was applied. That conservatism ultimately probably lost a few spots, and it really all bit him uh, at Mid Ohio. I remember going over for the Mid Ohio round, it was a double header round. He qualified on Friday afternoon and 7am Saturday morning for the two races they had there and on the outlap of the first uh, qualifying session, the car following Jason was caught unawares by Jason and the other car slowing down to start a lap, flew over the car immediately behind Jason, landed on top of Jason and they were instantly out of qualifying and then at 7 o'clock the next morning the track was dewy and there was no speed in the track and from memory he started one of those races, in 40th position and came sixth. But it was that weekend that largely cost him the points that would have seen him win the championship.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I want to fast forward because when uh, we had have- general, Ma- general manager of Brightek <laughs> and mm-hmm. then um, uh, that came to an end, sponsors and Ford and all those sort of things occurred, and you went back to where you had started with Velocity. Yeah, I didn't really have a lot of choice,
4: to be honest, Tony. I had some overtures from different people who wanted me to assist them with their their careers, and largely, you know, youngsters that people didn't know their name, which is what I get out of bed for each day. I don't have a lot of interest in you know, cherry picking for the stars. I like to bring on the new names that are potentially unheard of at that point in time. It sort gives me the satisfaction, and yeah, I had to move into my own business again, and I made two phone calls. Quite early in the piece, after having registered Velocity Management Group of the business, and one was for Scott McLaughlin's father, uh, who we had discussed potentially doing some management work for Scott, uh, but I couldn't do it in light of the amount of effort that was being put into Brighton to keep it going. And I rang Murray Lomax, who was then the executive producer of V8 Supercars TV, to inquire about any possible commentary jobs that would keep me at some of the events, just so I could fly my flag. And as it worked out, coincidentally, there was a, a anchor commentary position for the at Circuit Commentary, which Murray uh, and I spoke about and he ultimately offered me the role, which I performed through until around 2003, for I think it was five full years, and then took on board Scott McLaughlin um, in his infancy and put together his, his program uh, to move into the Dunlop Series with Stone Brothers Racing, and then that morphed into the Fujitsu Cool Driver Program, which is a youth development program aimed at finding the next Scott McLaughlin, which um, at that point, I was telling Fujitsu Scott will be the next Craig Lowndes, but I guess like any salesperson, you don't really know it's going to happen, but
1: he's on the way. <laughs> he's well yes, on the way. indeed. So, um, I, I remember vividly meeting Scott still in uh, go-karting gear at um, um, uh, Hamilton, the very uh, first Hamilton, and uh, that was part of the Brightech uh, scholarship scheme you were running, which was a jujitsu, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a combination of Brew and Beasley's
4: Minder Motorsport. I think he was running at least three Formula Fords, possibly four, and also um, Scott in karts. And Scott ran in the same livery as our, our Fujitsu-sponsored uh, Falcon of that era, and, uh, and so too did the scholarship cars that Bruin Beasley was running. And it was our way of being able to try and do something for Scott, while I was still uh, managing and general managing the business of Brightech, and Scott came to some of the events with us, and you know he he could see the way people behaved and learned a lot from what Jason was doing. He used to sit on in on some of the debriefs and he did the lap board for sixty laps during the course of Bathurst uh, as a fifteen year old, and you know, he had a great motorsport brain. His his dream was to be the next Greg Murphy, and, and he used to watch through events at Cooker Covey and 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 wanted to emulate the feats of Greg. He didn't ever have an interesting racing in Formula One at that stage, and. You know, largely, he's been able to achieve not quite everything Greg's achieved, because of course Greg went on to win four Baptists and finished second in the championship. Scott's not done either of those things yet, but the way he's going right now, you have to wonder whether or not that's, um, that's not going to be addressed potentially with both of those elements this year. It certainly be a chance to uh, be contending for a Baptist win, and I'd be surprised if he's not a genuine championship challenger coming your end.
1: Now, you've actually uh, orchestrated uh, a number of things in Scott's early career. One was getting to Stone Brothers, where he won the Dunlop, it was not Dunlop Series then. It was the... Um, it was, was a Fujitsu Series, and he won it, in a yeah. Fujitsu-sponsored car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, It yeah,
4: um, was a wonderful that, thing to do. Um, you know, Ross had shown some interest in Scott, and I think they'd met at, uh, at a function of some sort, and, uh, and, and he wanted to do a, an apprenticeship. Uh, in a uh, you know fabrication um, yeah. apprenticeship. So it was an opportunity for Scott to go there and work and also drive. And we had to find the money collectively. And Fujitsu bought into the philosophy of uh, helping youth and, and ideally being part of a championship win. And, and ultimately, they were on Scott's car when he had his first year at Gary Rogers Motorsport. But um, yeah, it was a four year program. He spent a long time learning from Shane Van Gisbergen. And from memory, back then, he was on his L plates. Um, on the on the on the roads but he was actually racing on the circuits and I can still remember Ross not wanting to run Scott at the first Dunlop series round or Fuji series round at the Clipsal 500 because he was so concerned about the notorious turn 8 so he recruited John McIntyre into the team to run that one event and ultimately John crashed at turn 8 it was ironic that um his fears yeah. of the car being destroyed by a younger more experienced driver or less experienced driver Uh, were were actually allayed by having a more experienced driver in who went in to do the same thing. It wasn't a big crash, but it was just ironic that ultimately um, it was turn eight that brought John undone. But Scott went on, obviously, to win the championship in his third full year, and then Gary Rogers gave him his start um, earlier than anticipated because he replaced Alex Primar in the final round at Homebush when Alex suffered from
1: heat exhaustion
4: on the Saturday. Scott had no... Longer got out of his Dunlop Series car, stood on the roof and celebrated the championship win. And he was being buckled into the, uh, the Commodore at Gary Roach Motorsport to do the, uh, the 250k race on the streets of Homebush. And then he started his full-time career in the Commodore and ultimately moved through to drive the Volvo. And now he's a Team Penske. So he was, I guess, it's fair to say, Scott was my first managed client under the auspices of Velocity Management Group. And previous to that, my only managed client uh, under Quattro Sports Marketing was actually Jason Bright. It was 100% commitment to to Jason's long-term goal in those days. But they've got on to do their own things in motorsport, devoid of my involvement. But um, I do still draw a lot of satisfaction from being involved when no-one largely knew who they were.
1: Yes, indeed. And and Scotty is certainly showing all the traits that he showed very early in his career. Um, You know, phenomenal that... uh, Last time someone took five
4: successive poles was back in 1988. That's a remarkable thing. He's found his happy place, hasn't he? Um, oh, no. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people who were saying that the Volvo had an unfair advantage and, you know, it had a beautiful little Swiss watch type engine. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Scott's largely seen off every teammate he's ever had. And he's had some yep. good teammates and probably in some ways they've been much maligned. But you know Fabian Coulthard this year, early in the year certainly had the upper hand, but in recent times, you know, Scott's really gelled with his current engineer, and um, I've had improves involved with Fabian as well back in the days of Greg Murphy Racing and Carrera Cup, etc. And you know they're both Kiwis and they're both exceptionally good racing drivers, but I, I would be surprised, short of disaster in the long distance races, if Fabian on form can actually find his way back into the fold in a way that he can challenge Scott because. Uh, short of a disaster, Scott's got that champion look about him. It's about the right time. I think it's what's his, his fourth full year in the championship. Multiple race winner, multiple pole positions. Um, yeah, he's certainly looking the goods. But hey, there's a long way to go, isn't there?
1: When you were, you know, you you came across him and through circumstances, what were the things that stood out in your mind about him that made you want to say, I want to be involved with this. I want to manage and you know, this, this young lad. I met him at Craig Murphy's uh, father's
4: house when I think he was about 12. And he was racing in carts, and uh, he was actually um, reasonably short and quite a stocky little fellow because he, he played rugby um, in New Zealand. They'd not long been in Australia, the family in those days, but I didn't really have anything instantly that stuck out in my mind other than well, I guess once you meet somebody, you take more than a passing interest in, in their career. And then uh, started to have more of an involvement uh, via association when you know he was moving up to the last two years in his karting career and he was winning a lot of races. And, yep. you know, you take on board the off-track demeanour, I guess their balance, their poise, their calmness, and just the racing intellect. And uh, I went to two or three of the events when he was racing in Victoria. He was racing against the Matthew Brabham's of the world. And from memory, I think Scott Pye was also a fellow competitor of his. And both those names have gone on to great things in motorsport as well. But... Uh, I guess it's the maturing process between 14 and 17. It's only three years, but in a young man's life, it's a massive step up into a real world. And it was just his commitment to getting back from his karting events, of which he was competing in greater than 30 events per year, at sometimes three and four in the morning. But having to get himself up and off to college and get his studies done and his school were not particularly great fans or, or did they have an understanding of motorsport if he'd been playing rugby he was probably given dispensation and a knighthood based on what yeah. what he was achieving but he ultimately said look you know i don't think i'm going to go on and be a lawyer or a doctor uh, i mean from memory it was about year 11 uh, i'd like to try and pursue a career in motorsport and i'd like to try and get myself into an apprenticeship and it was just in I guess the twilight of Jason Bright's program, you may recall Stone Brothers ran Jason's entry in 2009, yep. and I got a little closer to Ross and Jim and understood what they were looking for, and 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 said to them, look, I, there's a young driver I'm involved with that I'd like you to take a look at, and they ultimately met him and liked the look of what he did. They put him in the car and tested him, and and then when the opportunity genuinely exists that you're going to go racing and you commercialise that, and obviously his family invested a significant sum of money into his career but he was complemented by some of the commercial partners that we introduced uh, and then it's it's just trying to teach these people the ability to to keep the balance to communicate in a way that is respectful and it's and it's also natural and and that's one of the things that I think Scott did best he's he's always being able to communicate with everybody, just like he's sitting in a bar having a chat with his mates. And I think yeah. that goes a long way. But that, that, that legitimate personality, which has nothing to do with holding a steering wheel, that's Scott's job, not mine. If, yeah. you can, if you can find that within the person and they have the speed, they have some of the funding needed, then you've at least got a good starting point. And the same thing applies largely to Cam Waters, who I'm currently looking after now. They both have similar balanced respectful personalities with racing smarts and some
1: speed. Um, yeah, and the other and driver, you... yeah, uh, Renée Gracie has been a long-term uh, uh, protege of yours. Yeah, Renée was
4: another one that was about 13, I think. She was a cool driver, a cool driver, one of six carters that we um, went through a process of evaluating nationally. I think we had 380 applicants for six karting positions. Uh, for the Fujitsu Cool Driver program, and we wanted to include one female in that primarily because the buying decision to acquire white goods in a in home is largely influenced by the female. That's not a sexist comment, that's just a fact. And yep. Fujitsu wanted to try and get to a female demographic. So I uh, had a look at the best females out there. and at that point Renee was you know, racing competitively against the Joey Mawson's, the Dias LaHanes, you know the, the good carters in, uh, in Rotex karting, and I thought, well, you know this girl's quick. And uh, I didn't even know what she looked like at that point in time. And um, ultimately, out of the 12 or 13 females that applied, it was Brad Jones that convinced me that Renee, in his mind, was the best of the young carters at that stage. And she became a Fujitsu cool driver. And then on the back of Scott's graduation to the the Supercars Championship, some of the funding left in surplus um, from his Dunlop Series program morphed across into Renee's initial Carrera Cup program. And she spent two years driving in Career Cup with Fujitsu support and then uh, a single year driving with their support in the Dunlop series before ultimately they chose to pursue new horizons and new sponsorship uh, properties and moved out of motor racing. But Renee's been a client for the last five, six years and putting together the Baptist 1000 Supergirls program was another job for Velocity Management Group and I enjoyed that thoroughly working with both Renee and Simona.
1: And uh, yeah, the rest is uh, pretty much all in the past. It's all in the rear vision maritime. And the third driver in your current portfolio um, is another New Zealander, Jack Smevins, who I've met on a few occasions, and he certainly uh, uh, is uh, shining brightly. Yeah,
4: I can already get these Kiwis. It's amazing. Uh, my grandfather was born in Oamaru, and he was used to take me to racing in New Zealand when I was a young child and we'd go and spend some time over there. Levin was one of the places we used to go to. Sometimes Manfield, if I was really lucky, we'd get to Pukekohe. But that doesn't mean I'm showing any preferential bias towards New Zealanders. But um, I have great respect for what Andy McIlray has done with his business. And, and his talent spotting capabilities and the environment that he can provide a young driver with you know driver coaching from Warren luff with good mechanical and engineering and, and management expertise in Lee league uh, I've, I've placed some clients there that have had an involvement with me Shay Davies being another one of uh, my former clients who spent some time racing career a cup with Andy he's clearly done a great job with Matt Campbell in the areas he's been able to influence Matt and uh, and obviously you know Renee also spent some time with Andy McIlroy. so when he rang me last year and asked me would I be interested in having a look and working more actively with Jackson, uh, and I knew what Jackson had done in the 3 Cup Challenge. I'd spent some time at Porsche Cars Australia doing some media training work with him, and, and he, again, has a good personality. He's extremely well-balanced. He's very fit and focused. And it was a new challenge. It was just something a bit different because his future goals are not necessarily to be a V8 supercars driver, which is not to say he's ignorant to the fact that that may well exist, but he likes the GT racing format. And earlier this year, he showed why he likes it so much when he won the race at Phillip Island uh, on the Sunday in Torrential Rain by nearly a lap over his uh, teammate Garth Tander. Yes, and of
1: course, had a bit of help for that young bloke, Tim Miles, along the way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Tim drives the GT cars very well indeed. So that's, that's yeah.
4: about that's that's really the the interest I've had. And it's early days. There's a lot more to be done. And you know, Jackson's on a two year program in Carrera Cup, and I wouldn't mind. Uh, believing or uh, having faith that he's going to be able to follow in the footsteps of Matt Campbell. I mean, Matt took a couple of years to truly get his head around Carrera Cup, and he's now racing as a factory driver in Porsche Super Cup in, uh, in Europe. But I think Jackson's a very exciting young prospect. I, I just wish we could find a few more Australian young prospects we could potentially get there. I mean, yeah, the Supercars Championship has been dominated by Kiwis, but uh, the Carrera Cup Championship this year has got a couple in there as well. But, um I guess I can't, uh, I can't differentiate when you're actually uh, doing a job to try and assist a young person's career. You certainly can't check passports before you evaluate talent.
1: Now motorsport for you is a job and obviously it's something you get up and enjoy and do well, but it obviously is also a great you know, hobby and enthusiasm and love and interest that you on a regular basis you know, get, get involved and, uh, and want to see. Yeah, look,
4: I still watch a lot of motor racing. I much, I must uh, watch it in a, a, a much briefer time frame, based on how you can watch the highlights of so much motorsport globally on YouTube or social media channels, or or, or on on the host websites that show you know the highlights packages of many racing. I don't have a lot of time to sit and watch a four hour NASCAR race, then a three hour IndyCar race, and then wait for the Grand Prix that night. But I am still a, a motorsport fan. I try to keep an eye on all forms of motorsport as far as circuit racing is concerned, globally and locally, and I've still spent a lot of time going to car events to see who some of the new young drivers might be coming through, and it's great to see many of the youngsters that didn't necessarily make the cut for the Reducing Cool Driver Program, because we couldn't fit everybody in, but a lot of them are actually out there doing good things in different categories, even drivers that a lot of them wouldn't necessarily know, like Jordan Boyce, who's running in the KUMO V8 series, who's, you know driving for Terry Wy in his racing in his first year, and He's, he's flying his flag quite high. Many of the youngsters in, in Formula 4 uh, and some other drivers who are doing gt 3 Cup Challenge. But the youth element is getting better and getting stronger all the while. Global sports, these younger people, fitter people, uh, more scientifically developed people. All graduating at a much younger age with greater capabilities, and I don't see any reason why that's going to change on the back of the fact that you know Max Verstappen came in at such a young age and scored a race victory, um, you know, in, in his teens. And I think that that's going to continue moving forward, and um, hopefully, from my business perspective, that will mean that there'll be you know, a future flow of prospective new clients that I can try and use as the, the new flag bearers and following the footsteps of some of the previous you know, people that I've had an association with. Chris, it's
1: been fantastic hearing your story. Um, Craig, I haven't spoken to you about this, but Chris, I think it would be terrific if we could get you on. Because of the number of different roles you've played around supercars, we're hoping to have a bit of a forum in a few weeks' time, getting a few of the people like Ross Stone, Alan Heathie, just to, <laughs> to join in a discussion and on the views on the future of supercars. It would be wonderful if you could spare us that time, and probably the same sort of uh, day of the week and the same sort of time period. Yeah, I'd love to be involved in uh, in that. Only no problem whatsoever. I
4: um, I think it'd be great. I mean, you know, I'm I'm probably a bit of a silent voice in many ways, but I I have you know had a passion for the sport for. Uh, what goes on to be like, 45 years, I've, I've participated in the sport for you know 8 or 10 years. I've been lucky enough to see it over the fence as a fan and, and you know, standing on the grid as a general manager of a team at Bathurst and, and had a arm's length extension with a number of young drivers who've gone on to be household names in the sport. Uh, and I still many times are uh, uh, debating with, with some of my other motorsport friends the, the strengths, weaknesses and virtues of some of the things that are going on in global work. World Motorsport and local motorsport for that matter and, and believe I have an opinion that is one that can at least be contributed to an argument as opposed to necessarily being you know heard, heard by in a way that has to be my way or no other way and you know, yeah. whether it's the halo in Formula 1, whether it's car of the future Gen 2 in supercars or anything in between, I'm more than happy to contribute to any form of forum that, uh, that I can you know, provide an opinion on
1: We'd love to have that so thank you very much this week Chris for joining us And uh, we'll be in touch and and give you a time of the day. Perfect. That'll be great, Teddy. Great to chat. Thank you, mate. Much appreciated. So, after the break, we'll come back with our final thoughts.
0: Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And,
4: you know, every, every year I see Jackie's crew at the Grand Prix and I just
0: remind myself... Of of his part in starting the the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion.
1: Jack Brabham certainly
3: left his mark, not only on Australian motorsport, but motorsport all around the world.
0: Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au.
2: Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. And our
1: final thoughts this week. Craig, yours? My final thoughts
2: is... Well, it's not often something we talk about on Inside Supercars, and that's bikini contests. But uh, in light of the fact that there's an online promotion of the Miss Supercars for 2017, I thought uh, I would raise, where does the grid girl stand in Australian motorsport or in supercars in 2017? Of course, uh, you think back to 10 years ago, and and those bikini-clad shots were the, the staple of uh, v 8 Magazine for one and and Auto Action and uh, right across the motorsport field, you would see as many grid girl shots as you'd see shots of race cars. Have we become an enlightened age and is the Miss Supercar pageant uh, now completely out of date? I, I think uh, that Wayne Caddick many years ago had just about got the uh, grid girls out of supercars and... Then a sponsorship deal was done with Forex, who of course had the Angels on board, which pretty much uh, brought pole dancing to the front of the grid, or almost uh, brought pole dancing to the front of the grid. And that's not to besmirch the girls at all. Um, many of whom had uh, had, uh, you know, uh, were well educated and and had uh, decided to take on a professional dancing career, but. Tony, I might get your thoughts because you've certainly been around long enough to remember the start of young ladies standing next to racing cars at a track.
1: Well, you asked the question of where does a young girl in bikini stand when she's on the grid? Well, next to the driver's door, doesn't she? Um, But more importantly, I remember vividly that time and I remember how well Wayne Caddick fought against it and it was much to the annoyance and anger Of Wayne and other members of the board and commission of supercars that that deal was done and even more so when it was learned that there was part of the deal was television where the dancers the 4x dancers got their little time on television it's nothing against those women and what they did but the one thing that supercars has vigilantly remained from when they started back in 97 is that it's been a family sport and unlike say in in NRL, the AFL has been very clean in that respect. Only one team, and that was the Carlton Bluebirds, went down that path. No, Sydney we were... did.
2: Don't Sorry? Sydney had their um, dances as well? Don't don't just pick my team just because you go for a lousy one.
1: I, <laughs> I wasn't picking on your team. I didn't realise that Sydney had dancing girls, but as I remember, that Carlton was the one of the very few then that went that route in having bluebirds, or bluebells, I think they were called. The bluebells, that's right. Um, Yeah, but the AFL and supercars chose that path, or a Vesco as it was then, chose that path as the same one that AFL went down, in that they kept it as a family sport without having women there being paraded. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, I enjoy the female form, but it was that thing where I found it was demeaning and belittling them our sport, when it did happen with the 4X girls. And I know, I remember vividly, the first time they showed their face and other things was at the end of year um, of, I can't remember what year it was, but I remember standing with Tim Edwards, Ross Stone, and a couple of other team owners, and they were horrified when they saw these girls come out and do this dance because it was just totally inappropriate. Anyway, so that was uh, then, and fortunately, it's uh, largely gone away. But this is now, and what I was going to actually talk about was how New Zealand constantly has this production line without having any major sort of uh, dollar involvement. They've only got 20 million less people than Australia has, and yet they are able to produce year after year great young drivers, drivers that we see in our supercars here, and obviously three of them are up the very top of the tree, one of them leading the championship. But they also compete and have won the World Endurance Championship. They've won Le Mans. They've won... Scotty Dixon has won Indy 500, and they've won the championship. All sorts of things, all over the place. And Richie Stanaway is yet another one of these. Chris Sanders, Der Hartley, Earl Bambert. They're just an absolute press Now, we have our successes, and obviously Daniel Ricciardo. But interestingly, Daniel succeeded because he, he left Australia very early. He went up to the Formula BMW in Asia, and that was his route to get into Europe. He didn't use anything in Australia to get there. He used a means outside Australian motorsport, which is very sad to think that there wasn't that stairway in place here. Now, we know that camps are doing their best and trying to instigate Formula 4, and we just don't see uh, the uh, drivers climbing that ladder. We've seen some bloody terrific drivers, like Will Brown, for instance, is one, Comes to mind, but it needs to be, and now maybe former 5000 the resurface of that in supercars maybe that will help one young driver show his capabilities in an overpowered car um, with no aero assist. So that's going to be something that comes up in the future. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show on Inside Supercars. Next week, of course, the second part of Kevin Simon, along with Anthony Maca McDonald from Mobile One HSV, to tell us of life on the inside of Watkinsville Racing. So, Craig, thank you from me.
0: And good night from him. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.